Uh, my name is Vito Colucci. I'm the co-MC of the night. And the reason why I'm here, uh, I worked undercover organized crime back in the East Coast in Connecticut and New York for uh, six years. Two years I wore a wire, uh, infiltrated the Gambino and Genovese crime family. The reason I did my assignment was my bosses, my own bosses on the Connecticut Police Department, eight of them total, including my own lieutenant that I worked for on a daily basis and my own sergeant, were running the gambling and the narcotics racket, multi, multi, in the, into the millions of dollars. And um, I uncovered it kind of early in my career. I didn't have too many people to go to because the whole town was really corrupt at that point. So it was very uh, difficult for me to go to anybody until we got a uh, new police chief that was brought in from the West Coast, from California, who called me in, asked me if I'd go undercover, wear a wire, which, uh, you know, when you're young and uh, you just, you know, you, you volunteer for anything. Now, now if, I, if I thought about it, I had five kids at the time. They were all little. Uh, I did my assignment, death threats in the paper. The reporter, Anthony Dolan, that wrote uh, seven dozen articles, not just on me in the paper, but just the whole town itself. He went on to win a Pulitzer. In 1980, he was hired as Ronald Reagan's speechwriter. So it was a real big deal back on the East Coast. And, uh, you know, that's my claim to fame. I worked undercover, same era that Henry was cutting through Stanford, Connecticut, going up to Bridgeport, right? We never crossed paths. We knew about each other, but uh, we never, um, you know, and, and it may seem strange because you have a, a former cop, you have a New York State investigator over here, and you have organized crime people. Okay, so it may seem a, a weird mix, but you know, it's really not because I know these three guys. And these three guys, you got to forget about what they did in the past. I'm just concerned with what they are now. Okay, and they do good things now, and I, I can attest for that. Otherwise, I wouldn't waste my time to, to be here. Uh, I know Henry. Henry helps police departments, he teaches cops about how to, uh, you know, investigate organized crime. You've been to Quantico, Virginia, too, right? He's gone to the FBI to show them how to work cases, okay? So, I mean, he's teaching them the same thing that I knew as a undercover cop. So I'm only concerned Andrew D. Donato's become a good friend of mine over the last year and a half. I've watched, you know, how he is. It's an amazing man. And he's going to tell his story. And, of course, hiding. I wanted to have Frank's brother Mike here so nobody gets nervous. <laughs> Sorry about that. But anyway, so that's why we're here. Uh, if at the end of the night anybody's interested in my book, it's inside the private eyes of a PI because I went from being undercover cop to being a private detective. I, I'm on all the TV shows, Nancy Grace, uh, Bill O'Reilly, whoever name you, you want to say. So I talk about that in the book here. I do that on a regular basis. Uh, the first, I want to introduce my co-host, who is right behind me, um, Robert Allen. And Robert Allen has the most popular tour in all of Las Vegas. It's called the Vegas Mob Tour. And he's going to talk a little bit about that. He's a talented musician all his life. He's played with everybody. Did you play with Jerry Lee Lewis, I think you said? And, and you played with Louis Prima and a lot of the top stars. So he has a very interesting life. And um, you know, then I'll introduce Denny Griffith after that. But uh, we're going to bring up, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it, Robert Allen. Thank you. Vito Colucci. Come on, let's hear it for Vito. All right. My name is Robert Allen. I uh, spent my uh, early career back in the 60s 
in rock and roll. I worked for Jerry Lee Lewis, the Everly Brothers, so Dick Clark, Cavalcade of Stars. I spent a lot of time on the road working for a lot of the celebrities of that time period. And in the process worked many, many mob-owned and mob-controlled clubs. So as a kid, you know, I was growing up working these places because back in the 60s, most of the nightclubs that you worked were owned by these people. So I had a chance as a young age to get acquainted with how that part of the business ran. Then I came out here in the 1970s as a comedian. And uh, I worked for three or four different uh, mob-controlled casinos here. Uh, I was the uh, comedian in 28 shows here, including the Follies Brugere for five years and the Splash Show at the Riviera Hotel for 10 years. So I had quite a bit of experience here working in Las Vegas. About six years ago, I started the uh, Haunted Vegas Tour and the Vegas Mob Tour. Um, Every time we would go out, people would say, is the mob still here? And they wanted to know about it. So my wife said, hey, if they want to know about it, why don't you start a tour? So that's how we did it. And the tour has been running seven nights a week for the last uh, six years. And uh, we've been written up in all kinds of different magazines. We won AOL's Tour of the Year uh, two years in a row. Now, uh, when we first started putting this together, I didn't know where to start. And I happened to pick up the RJ, the Review Journal, and there was a story in there about a guy named Denny Griffin and uh, Dennis Arnoldy and Frank Collada. So uh, I called them and said, let's meet. And so they became my technical advisors. And so everything on the Vegas Mob Tour comes right from these guys. Frank's own stories are on there and being used, and they are my creative consultants for the tour. So we're going to offer you something tonight. Anybody who's in here, the tour sells for $66.25. Anybody here tonight, I'm going to let you have a $50 tour ticket price. So if you want tour tickets, uh, Tina will be back, my... uh, operations manager, and she'll be the one you need to talk to. All right, well, thank you, and uh, now we'll uh, let Vito introduce Denny. I don't know if Robert said it, but that's, what, a three, how how long is that, three and a half hour tour? Two and a half hour tour, so you really get your money's worth for that, that's for sure. I wanted to introduce my friend over here, because Denny I've become very good friends with over the last couple years. He's an author. He's a former investigator from New York State. He'll talk to you about that a little bit. He's written 11 books right now, right? And he's working on three new ones as we speak. I have the privilege of saying he's writing my book, which, uh, which will be out the end of the year. It's called Rogue Town, A City Under the Grip of Organized Crime. It's my story about working undercover. But he's an amazing man, a good man, and a good friend. And he's going to talk to you a little bit about his life and the interesting things he's done. And he's, he's written Frank Collada's book. He's written Andrew DiDonato's book. So Denny Griffith. Thank you. I, before I start with my spiel, uh, I want to point something out to everybody. Would you please take a look over here to my left at the exit door? Okay. I, I bring that up for this reason. Several people have asked me, they said, look, do you ever have any concerns about being in the area of former mobsters who may have prices on their heads and that type of thing? And I said, well, I don't want to say I'm scared, but let me put it this way. When we go in the other room tonight, you will see that the seating is arranged uh, so that I'm not with them. I said, and I also want to tell you that There's no live entertainment going on here at the present time, and none is expected. So if you see a violin case come in the door, I would immediately head that way. That's exactly right. Uh, Only only kidding, I hope. 
Um, as, as Rita was saying, I'm uh, originally from New York State, around the Syracuse area. I had uh, 20 years' experience as a police officer, deputy sheriff, and then an investigator, a fraud investigator for New York State. And it was uh, when I retired and moved out here, I wasn't sure what to do with myself, so I decided I would write a book. You know, the old saying, everybody's got a book in them. Well, I, I decided to give it a try. And I wrote a fictionalized account of a case I had worked on back in New York. And I, I got the writing bug from that. I'd never written before anything but reports. And I, uh, I wrote, I now have a total of seven uh, mystery thriller fictions out. But in 2001, I was on the verge of finding another hobby. Because I, I felt I was kind of treading water with, the, uh, with mystery thriller stuff. And I told a lady at a writer's conference, I, she probably wouldn't see me again because I was going to get out of the writing business. Well, she said that with my background, I should start writing nonfiction crime. And uh, my first book wasn't actually crime. It was the history of the Las Vegas Police Departments from, 2000, uh, excuse me, from 1905 through 2005. And in that book, for a Sin City book, I knew I had to do something about organized crime. And I didn't know who to write about. I talked to a, uh, an intelligence detective at Metro, and he said, write about Tony Spilatro. And I said, who is Tony Spilatro? And he said, if you've ever seen the movie Casino, Joe Pesci played a character based on Spilatro, and the movie was 95% accurate. So I immediately did some more research, and um, I wrote a section on Tony Spilatro. And I became really uh, infatuated with that. I watched the movie several times and, and uh, read a lot of newspaper articles and so on. So after the police book was at the printers, I wondered if I could do a whole story about Tony. And timing was perfect. My, uh, the uh, FBI agents and Metro cops who had investigated Tony and his crew had just retired, and they could, for the first time, talk on the record about their experiences. So I wrote a book called The Battle for Las Vegas, The Law Versus the Mob. And through that book, I became acquainted with Frank Collada. So uh, that's how I got into the true crime business. And I want to say, as Vito mentioned, uh, I consider what these fellows are today not what they did 15, 20, or 30 years ago. And... Um, I've worked very closely with Frank and with Andrew, and although I haven't uh, done any writing with Henry, I've known him now for, I think, three years, and we do events together periodically, and uh, I have no qualms whatsoever about the three men here to my left. Uh, they are, I'm not fearful of them, I don't uh, have any qualms with being with them, I don't have any qualms with inviting them to my house. So I just want to say thank you guys for what you did in changing your lives around. Appreciate it. Thank you. And, you know, one thing I like to say, too, because Den Denny brought up an interesting point, and I've said this before at dinners that I've done with Henry and different things. You know, we, we did a show a year ago here at the Vegas um, Library, and somebody screamed from the back, rat. Remember that? They ran, they ran out the building. <laughs> now, you know how I answer that? Now, I was a cop a long time, okay? 
I worked narcotics, I worked organized crime. My question to these people all the time is, you get arrested, you're sitting with the cops, you're sitting with the FBI, you know you're going to do 30 years. You're told you're doing 30 years. You're doing 25 years, whatever it may be. And I never get an answer from this question. I say to them, you're going to keep quiet nowadays? You're going to walk off to jail and do your time? Or are you going to give up your grandmother, your Aunt Philomena, and everybody else that comes along with the ride? And nobody can answer that. So they can yell rat all they want, okay? But when push comes to shove, they do the right thing. And I know when Andrew gets up, he's going to talk about once you are arrested, they don't care about you anymore. The mob don't care about you anymore. They'd rather get rid of you. So you're not doing anything uh, good that way. But I got one quick joke to say before, because I have to get it even with Denny for something he did to me the other day. How many people in here have ever done sports betting? How many people have bet before? Oh, quite a few, okay? A lot of people here. You know, people don't realize Denny Griffith in his, na- in his day was the sports better in all of Las Vegas. I mean, $10,000, $20,000, $30,000 on games many years ago. So, you know, but Denny's problem was he'd always lose. So, you know, week one goes by, he loses $28,000. Second week, $34,000, $18,000. It goes on. He's calling his bookie. He had a bookie back then. He calls his bookie every day, every day, every week. 52 weeks goes by, and then he's lost all 52 weeks. So he picks up the phone. He calls his bookie. Hey, Harvey. Denny here. You got the lines? Harvey says, Denny, I got hockey now. Denny goes, what the heck do I know about hockey? Get it? You lose 52 weeks, what the heck do I know about hockey? Anyway, but he stopped. He's reformed. He's lost all, he lost all that money for all those weeks. What the heck do I know about hockey? I don't know, but I know Denny. He gave up 50 cent Kino because it was too expensive. <laughs> Well, you know, the next, the next person we want to introduce, Andrew DiDonato. Andrew, um, Andrew's book just came out, Surviving the Mob, that he wrote along with Denny Griffith. And not only did it just come out, it's already gone through its whole first printing. It's on its second printing already. And that's incredible. You know, and, and I can testify from a, a police point of view this is the real thing, okay? What he put in this book is a real story. It's down and dirty. It's what it's like being a, a mob soldier. And no holes barred, okay? He has a video out about it. And, man, that thing zipped through the first printing like nobody's business, and it's going to go right through the second printing. So my friend, Andrew DiDonato, why don't you grab this mic, Andrew? Can you hear me in the back over there? All right. How you guys doing? My name is Andrew DiDonato. A few years I know from, you know, a few of the events I did before. Uh, how do I say this? I'm a career criminal. Uh, you know, it's not something you go around bragging about, but, you know, that's who I am. You know, I come to terms with that a long time ago. You know, I took the proper steps to change my life a few years back. Um, I was a member of the Gambino crime family since the early age of about 16 years old. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. And uh, my neighborhood, my neighborhood was like, how can I explain it? It was entrenched in organized crime activity. It was the normal behavior for everybody that we knew. I mean, you go walk down the street, and there'll be seven or eight guys on the street, and four or five of them from different crime families, guys that I knew. I grew up, I was with the Gambinos. My friend Billy sitting right here, he was with the Colombo family. And, um, 
you know, when you ingratiate yourself with these guys growing up, we went to school together, we played ball together, and these early childhood friendships grow into business partners in later years. You know, you, you reap the rewards of those friendships. And uh, that's what me and my friend Billy did. Um, when I got out of prison in 1994, it wasn't even my own crew that looked out for me. When I got out of prison, I was out of hot 24 hours. It was Billy and his father who extended themselves to me from another crime family, which to me was a lot of class. I was, in, I was involved in every aspect of organized crime activity you could imagine. So just, you know, put your head on it for everything you guys seen on TV that you know is organized crime activity. I've been involved in bookmaking, Shylocking, collecting debts, uh, drug dealing, I mean, credit card fraud, uh, phone scams, everything. Soup to nuts. And it's not nothing to be proud of, but it just goes to show you that organized crime is well at work and it morphosizes every year and it changes with the times. You know, the things that I did back in the, in the mid-90s, guys can't do today. I was part of a bank robbery crew. We used to travel the country robbing banks. You know, that activity you won't see so much anymore. I was just talking to this gentleman about an hour ago. I did a, um, an interview for a newspaper, and this guy was asking me a few questions, and he said, well, how is organized crime today? I said, well, organized crime today is not going to be what you guys are used to as far as, like, boss, underboss, soldier. It ain't going to work that way no more. You know, the FBI went to war against organized crime for many, many years now. And what they do now is they have so many resources at their fingertips and they have so sophisticated stuff, you know, that they can deal with with all the money behind them that you can't win if you're in the street earning. So guys now realize the capacity that the things that once they survived on, they can't survive on anymore. So what you guys see in the future now, the 21st century gangster, you're going to see a lot of, like, uh, identity theft, all this um, stuff like you know, computer fraud and stuff like that, a lot of white-collar crimes, stock market swindles and, you know, things of that nature. You know, when I was in the street, it was all about, you know, the meat and potatoes of organized crime, what I just told you previously, were more hands-on, you know, extortion of people and uh, imposing your will upon them, so to speak. Um, my whole world came crashing down in 1996, the loss of a few friends of mine who died way before their time. And I started to see the writing on the wall, what organized crime really was. I was one of those guys, believe it or not, you know, I drank the Kool-Aid in my neighborhood. I was one of those guys that I would have ran through a fire for my crew, for my friends. I was one of those kids who thought, hey, if I get 100 years, fuck it, this is the way that I'm going to live and that's just it. But then you realize I was brainwashed. I was a young kid. What I was telling the gentleman in the back before, I said, you know, I was a young kid with a propensity for violence. And I was a risk taker. You know, these are the recipes that organized crime bosses, I was an organized crime boss's wet dream. He loved it. You know, here I was. I was this kid that was going to be able to just point me in a direction and I'd go. I mean, that's how brainwashed I was. And to use words like, you know, loyalty, respect, honor, it's all bullshit. There's no honor. There's no respect. Years ago, you went to jail Guys, they might look out for your family if you were lucky enough. You had a crew behind you, some decent friends who were going to do the right thing by you. You go to jail today in today's mafia, here's what's going to happen. Your wife and your kids are going to be on welfare. You're going to do a 10 or 15 year sentence. Okay? The guys who you call friends are looking to sleep with your wife when you're not around. And there's no more honor. And then it took me a while to see that. And uh, I'll give you one story. I had a dear friend of mine. Big earner for the family, big earner, well-respected kid. 
he was involved like me in everything. He was out in the trenches, had a dear, really good respect for this kid. He went to jail, and he was away three years. He didn't get one Christmas card. He didn't get one envelope for his pocket while he was away. What happened was there were some indictments coming down from some, for some of the bosses, and they knew that he was involved in some criminal activity with them, and they knew the only way to see which way he was going is by reaching out to him and maybe throwing him a bone. So you know what they did? They sent him a $50 check for Christmas and said, pal, we're thinking about you. Thinking about me. You're thinking about me now because you think your ass is on the line. So he's, he, you know, he's seen the writing on the wall and he became a government witness. What I'm trying to say is that I didn't wake up one morning and decide to turn my back on the only life that I knew. But what happened was I was faced with a reality of the bullshit that I've been given all my life. Thinking that I was a part of something greater, which I'm not. You know, the saddest day in my life is when I looked in the mirror and realized that I wasn't this honorable guy that organized crime guys want to portray themselves as. I looked in the mirror and all I seen was a fucking criminal. And I realized that I was no better. And I wasn't a part of this great entity. It was just a bunch of guys getting together, sticking together, and realizing that we were the only people we can count on each other to break the law and look out for each other in doing so. And then as the years went on, even that changed. Maybe because I was a little younger then, I thought that things changed. But when I came home from prison in 94 on my first bid, I realized that it was a self-preservation era where you seen bosses just taking guys on board because they had money, using guys like myself because, see me, there's nothing special about me. I'm one of many. There's many guys like me in my neighborhood that are used every day for the resources that they can provide for the, whatever toughness that they could do, whatever crimes that they could commit. We're just pawns in the game. There's very few bosses, and these are the guys that you read about in the New York papers, and you think, wow, this guy's a legend. I did time with a lot of these guys, and I can tell you right now that 90% of them fall way short of their legend. Some of these guys wouldn't go to the yard because they're afraid to go to the yard unless a guy like me went with them. But, you know, as a young kid, you don't see that. As a young kid, you see guys with big money, cars, jewelry, but you don't see the opposite side of the coin, the coin where they got to pay for what they're doing. And back then... You know, law enforcement wasn't really on our heels yet, not until the commission case came in like the mid-80s till law enforcement really started putting the boots to us. And um, it's sad because I look back on my life, my life was a fucking wreck. I mean, you know, there's nothing I can look back on my life on and say, you know what, I was proud during this era or that. I committed every crime under the sun. Everybody in this room would have been a victim or a potential victim for a guy like me. And, you know... Even my legitimate friends, kids I went to school with, even those kids I couldn't look at upon as just friends anymore because if my boss wanted something that you had but you, you went to school with me, you still had to be taken because that's the rules of the game. And my loyalty, no matter if I know you 30 years, my loyalty has to go to the family. And if you stutter when it comes time to showing your loyalty, well, you know, you, you're short for this world. You're done. You're a baked potato like we say in my neighborhood. You're done. And, you know, like I says, my story in itself, I don't know what kind of effect it's going to have on people, but at least I know after I wrote the story and me and Dennis got together and we did it, at least I know that there's a message and the message is clear. If you want to be a criminal in the year 2011, you better go for mental evaluation because you've got to be an imbecile. Because there's nothing that you can do that the FBI has never seen. There's no new scam that you're going to come up with that somebody else hasn't done. It's all redundant. 
I mean, if you look at the last arrest in January that they happened in New York, they arrested 126 guys. They wrote a few articles in the New York newspapers. There was a lot of guys on, that, on all the cases from all the families that I did business with. And it was sad to see that some of the guys that I grew up with, who I was in the trenches with, are still out there fighting that losing battle, you know, drinking that Kool-Aid, thinking that they're going to be the exceptions. Maybe 1% in this life, I was telling this gentleman in the back before, maybe 1% of the guys that I grew up looking up to in the whole inception of organized crime activity since the turn of the century back in the 1900s could say that they reaped the rewards of the money they stole, danced at their kids' weddings, and retired without going to jail or somebody trying to kill them. So it's the other 99% like a guy like me who through the bumps and the bruises realized that the life was bullshit, you've been sold a bill of goods, and you've been living a lie for the last 30 some odd years. Now, there's two things that come out of this. It's either some kid's going to be honest enough with himself to know that what I'm saying is the truth. And the funny thing is that there's probably 90% of my neighborhood probably knows that what I'm saying is truthful. But organized crime is so entrenched in the neighborhood that these people can't even can't even express their own beliefs because they live under that fear that if they express that they're on my side, they're going to be ostracized in the area in which they live. So it's sad that even in 2011, people are afraid to speak their mind for a very, very small community. What they don't realize is that that's how organized crime thrives, by putting in the fear that they don't even have to be on the fucking scene to make you do what they want to do. Just the fear factor of thinking that they might react to what you're doing is enough to keep you in line. So when people stop to realize the truth about it, and the truth about it is that no organized crime family or crew, they're only as, the bosses are only as tough as their crews are. So you had guys who were known in my neighborhood as true tough guys. Oh, he's a tough guy. This guy's this, that. He's only as tough as who his crew is. If he had no crew behind him, how tough is he going to be? And you don't realize how tough somebody is until you go to prison. Now, I've been in prison a lot of years in my life. So all I can tell you is this. In prison, there's two things guys respect in prison. Violence, all right, and that you're never going to allow anybody to take anything from you and they want to see a guy fight for something that he believes in, whether he's right or wrong. You could have been a lieutenant, a captain, an underboss. It don't matter. In jail, you're only respected for the violence that you could inflict on somebody and that you stand up for yourself. It's a different world. And hit nine out of ten of these guys who come in to jail who are wise guys or whatever, yeah, you got your tough guys. You got guys who are stone-cold murderers. There's no doubt about it. But a majority of guys come in there and, listen, if they didn't have the guys around them to protect them, they're just going to fall to wayside like everybody else. And you don't realize it until you lived it the way I do that, there's no happy endings here. You know, there's no happy endings. You know, friends dying way before their time. People going to jail for 100 years because they believe in this. They're a part of something great. And after 10 years and having 90 years left on their incarceration, they realize that they've been left in the cold. But now it's too late. It's too late to cooperate. It's too late to complain. And your life is over. So you could have two, three million in the stash, but what does it matter? You can only spend $50 a fucking week. So what does it matter? So, you know, you don't really see these things until you live it. I was fortunate enough. I was marked for death. I was going to die. There was no question about it. It was, a, it was, it was as sure as you know the sun's going to shine, as sure as I knew I was dead. I was in a kill or be killed scenario. I could have went out like a champ. 
you know, down in a blaze of glory. I've been involved in a lot of violence in my life. You know, I'm not proud of it, but I squeezed the trigger many times. But I can tell you this. I was in a no-win situation. A dear friend of mine sitting right there told me, you kill one, two come. You kill two, four come. That's the scenario I was in. My scenario was the boss of the family, and there was no winning. So finally I made a conscious decision, something I never did. I made a decision for me, not me as a part of the, the greater machine. And it was a tough decision because I lost a lot for it, and it's an ongoing struggle every day to get a little bit of peace in my life back. You know, but it's doing things like this and getting the message out, and everybody asks me the same fucking question. You know, you come out here, don't you worry that this is going to happen or that's going to happen. Listen, if I live in fear, then they still control me. I might as well just stood a soldier and did what I had to do. I'm living my life on my terms now. If it's meant for me to get two in my dome, when that's the way it's going to be, nobody's going to cry. It's the life that I chose, and that's it. But at least now it's on my terms, not on their terms. So, listen, you guys have any questions, you ask me. I'm here all night other than that. You want to speak to my friend Frank or my friend Henry? They're up next. You know, that question gets asked all the time. I know for myself, Henry, Frank, Andrew, I did a radio show today, and the first thing the guy said to me, well, Vito, you worked undercover organized crime, and you had death threats for years. You know, aren't you, aren't you worried about that? And, you know, I feel the same way Andrew does. Hey, First of all, it's a long time ago. Uh, I did what I had to do. Do I sit and worry about it? No. Now, obviously, you don't try to do st real stupid things in your life. I mean, I got tired of walking the dog at midnight with my hand on my gun in my pocket while cars slow down all the time. But, you know, I don't worry about that stuff anymore. My life is in God's hands, always has been, always will be. And God can do with me what, what he wishes. And I've been protected all these years. And I know from doing things with Henry... Henry gets that question all the time. You know, and Henry says, hey, man, most of the people are dead, right? They're gone from his era, things of that nature. So um, I know both Henry and Frank said they'd like to open up for questioning for, uh, from the group here. Now, that can go to anybody up here, any of the six of us, any questions you have. Because like Henry says, hey, everybody knows my story. Let the people just ask questions. And the same thing with Frank. Frank Colada. So why don't, we, why don't we do at this time, he's going to give the mic on that side to these three guys. Any questions you have for any of the six of us up here, please, you know, raise your hand and, you know, I'll call you out, call you out and uh, we can go from there, okay? Who has a question? This is going to be easy. We got somebody. Good night. We, got, uh, we got somebody right here uh, in the front. What's your question, sir? What he asked, he said, what is the draw for a person to go into organized crime? The money, the women, the whatsoever. Who, who would like to answer that there? Money, women. <laughs> Don't have to get up at 6 in the morning to go to work. Get up when you want. Uh -huh. Says the guy behind you is looking to knock you out. Well, I don't know about that. In my days, not 40 years before Andrew. So there was a different crew of guys out there. Actually, everything this young man said here is uh, everything that I would have probably said. Which whom you think is your friend truly isn't your friend in the end when it comes to money. If you don't earn, you're going to go. If you're right, you're going to go. So, guys, I, I know the answer, but just to ask you three so you could tell the audience. Obviously, the biggest thing 
that anybody wants out of you three guys when you belong to them is money. That's all they care about, right? You've said it many times. How much of a draw? How much, right, Henry? How much money? It's the greed, and there's never enough money, right? The money's the bottom line because, you know, it's like any other business. You know, organized crime is a business. It's, it's a business. It's only handled a little bit differently. You know, we don't give out pink slips. You know, it's a little bit different. But, uh, yeah, in the outfit they give out pink slips. But, uh, but what, happen, what, what happens is it's like anything else. You know, you're only, and it's sad because you're only as good as your last earn. And that's what it is. You're only as good as your last earn. You can earn 20, 30 years straight once you stop earning the need for you, you're expendable like everybody else. And it's sad because you, you're only being used. Right. Next question. I'm Burl Bear. I talked to you uh, yes, on my show. And I, and I said to you, I said, you know who's five foot three, has big breasts, long blonde hair, and lives in Idaho? Me. This is the question. Witness protection. Yes, sir. Right? You're in witness protection. I hope they're protecting you like she inside your church. Henry, you were in witness protection for what, 35 seconds? Seven years. <laughs> Glorious models, wonderful years. Glorious, wonderful years. Uh, but you're not in it anymore. No. So can you tell us a little bit about how this witness protection thing, because we hear about it, but how does it work or not work? Well, I think the witness protection program works really well. Witness protection is a necessary scenario for guys like us to go in it gives you the capacity to change your life it gives you a capacity to start over uh, the marshal services i have nothing but the highest praises for the marshal service they do their job they do it well um it's what you make of it it's a second chance in life when you when you get that second chance to go out there and become a citizen like you guys and for me it was the scariest day of my life never had a legitimate job didn't know what what was going to happen but with the marshal service they structure it in a way where they want to see you thrive. But it's not a welfare case. They're only going to give you on your feet, and then it's up to you. Don't be lazy. Go out there. Go get work. For a guy like me, I was fortunate enough that I was able to get on my feet. For other guys, it's, it's not so much. But like I said, they do their job, and they do it correctly. If you really want to make the best of it, you'll, you'll do it, and you'll succeed. If not, you're going to fall off the horse, and things are going to happen. Hey, kid, uh, go ahead, Frank, go ahead. You have something to say? Yeah, go ahead. You want me to talk about witness protection? Sure. I lasted about two years in there. And the only reason why I lasted two years is because I, had, I was on paper, on parole. So as soon as my uh, parole was up, I, I got out of there. I wrote the marshal a letter, and I told him I'm out of here. You're the only one that saves yourself. They don't protect you. They give you some IDs, and you, you protect yourself. Uh, you can, you're, you're your own worst enemy. You're going to get yourself killed if you want to be killed. You know, If you act stupid, send pictures to people, tell people where you live. In my case, there's no way I, I mean, I just didn't keep contact with anybody for at least two or three years after I got out of the program. Uh, so you're your own worst enemy in the program. It's, uh, like I said, they only give you identification. I think they, you know, you got to, you actually got to do your own driver's license test. So they don't give you a driver's license. They give you a social security card and a birth certificate, right? Did you get anything else? Huh? took me two years to get my information. Two years. They don't even want you to bring a dog with you. If you got a pet, they don't want you to bring the pet in the program. They're afraid that they, the outfit will check where the pet's at, you know, what vet it's at. Yeah, they're crazy. <laughs> Go ahead. Next, next question. Yeah, well, uh, grab the mic, Henry. I got a question for you. Go oh, right ahead. I know we get this question a lot, Henry, when, sure. when we speak. Why don't you tell this uh, great audience some of the scenic places 
that you stayed in witness protection. I love it. Name some of these lovely places. What's the first place? I know it. Back in 1980, it was Omaha, Nebraska. I, I think they had about seven stoplights in Omaha at that time. But that's not bad. The second place was even better. Robin Hirsch, Kentucky. What was that name? The, the- Robin Hirsch, Kentucky. <laughs> that's the truth. You know, and uh, first of all, I couldn't understand the people. <laughs> no, I mean, the way it would be, between spitting in the can or on the floor, and, you know, and, uh, and the way they talked, I thought I was in a farm, and the way I dressed, I had to go. I had to go to Goodwill and buy a whole set of new clothes uh, because I couldn't walk. It's the gospel truth, you know. And just uh, you know, and then uh, and then I upgraded to Cincinnati, which wasn't far from Rabbit. <laughs> but I, I lived in about eleven different cities, and uh, and one thing I can say about witness protection, you know, uh, for me, back in 1980, 81, 82, you know. Uh, uh, I'm a knucklehead, so I I constantly use. I'm an alcoholic and a degenerate gambler, and I, I can go down the list. But I mean, but other than that, but that was back then. No, I mean, you know, and and, and to me, I had a. I honest to God, I mean, it was like a. Uh, uh, well, it was a second chance in life, and I got, I got. I mean, all I can say is I got lucky. You know, and a guy up there watched out for me because, uh, you know, t- 30 years ago, uh, 30, I don't know, uh, 25 years ago, or 26 years ago, I was a different person. You know, I, I, I try to do the right thing today, and I still stumble, you know. I'm, like, like I said, I'm, there's still a little bit of me that's a knucklehead. And the, the, the way Andrew was saying, I mean, the money is uh, in that... In that life, it's just uh, it, it's uh, it was fun for a while, but the the bottom line was uh, you, you know with uh, the woman you know the money uh, you know sex rock and roll you know drugs uh, I I wound up uh, you know anyway <laughs> any questions. <laughs> Enough about witness protection. Yeah, there's two, but they said that there's two that I got. I got One it. is the amount of money you made on the Lufthansa heist. What did you pocket? Not all that much. I mean, it was a, it was an eight, it was six million plus a couple of million in, in gems. Uh, I probably seen about a hundred. I didn't ask for my money. After they whacked eleven of my partners, I. Uh, the handwriting was on a wall. That's right. You're the only one. He's the only one yeah. alive from the Lufthansa heist. Am I right? Yeah, and I have a book coming out pretty soon about the Lufthansa heist and how it was done, and uh, it, hopefully it'll be you know a good one. Uh, and one one other thing before, because I know uh, Denny has a question for Frank, but one other thing. Last time you were at my house, young boy wrote you on the internet. And said to you that you were his hero. He's already started in junior high, robbing people and doing things. Do you remember what you said to him? Uh, Refresh my How you told him off, how you said, first of all, I I better not be your hero. Number two, you're a knucklehead if you're going to start a life like that. And don't look at me as a hero, right? I'm not a hero. I'm far from a hero. And uh, 
Well, talking about, you know, young kids, I, I got a television series coming out. Well, it's probably in about a year from now. All the papers are signed. And Nick Pelleggi, who wrote Wise Guy, uh, he's writing the pilot right now. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's called, well, the working title right now is Young Henry Hill. You know, why I was fascinated and intoxicated by that lifestyle. You know, what, what caused me to go, you know, down the wrong path in life. You know, I come from a, a normal family, well, pretty normal family. Uh, dysfunctional normal family. <laughs> but a wonderful family. You know, I'm the only criminal. I was the only criminal, you know, in my family. Anyway, hopefully it'll help some more young kids. But, uh, you know, Scorsese and, 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 uh, and uh, you know, and Pelleggi, you know, writing the pilot as we, as we sit here and... I want to thank all you people for, you know, attending, and I I, I appreciate it. Yeah, before I get to Frank, I just got to tell one brief Henry story since we're here in Vegas. Uh, one of the first times I met Henry, we of course discussed the Lufthansa heist and and, and all the the money that uh, that crew Henry was involved with made over the years. And uh, I said, what did you do when you had a big score? You know, I said, did you ever come to Vegas? Are we out here? And he said, oh, yeah. He said, we'd come. Sometimes we were going to, in fact, could serve as a money laundering thing, to come back with some cash. They could say, we just don't want it in Vegas. Um, and he said, but usually, he said, we'd extend our stay. We'd be hitting them pretty good to begin with. And all of a sudden, the, the worm would turn, and we'd go back home broke. You know, we'd stay uh, six days instead of three or whatever. And I'm thinking to myself, they're telling me about, all the money they would they would blow out here, and I said, God, I said, I, then you ever like want to commit suicide? You know, go home and say, what the hell did I do? We put all this effort in to do this robbery, and I went out and blow it in six days in Vegas. And he said, no. He said it was never like that. He said those days. He said money was like monopoly money. It wasn't real money. You weren't going to a, a factory every day and punching a time clock to get your money. And he said it was no big deal. He says, we got back, we were broke. He said, instead of hijacking one truck a day, we hijacked two. So that would kind of uh, replenish the supply fairly quickly. Uh, and it, it's probably hard for a lot of us to think of money that way where it isn't really money. You know, it's, it's, it's just uh, something that's easy come and easy go. But I want to talk to Frank about the Witness Protection Program. Uh, and this is, Frank, you had an incident one time when you were in the program and you had to go back to Chicago from wherever you were at to testify. And uh, wasn't there something in the airport where the marshals uh, dropped you off? Yeah, uh, usually when you go to testify, they bring you to the airport and they wait for the plane to take off before they leave. Well, these two marshals, they dropped me off at the airport and uh, they left. They didn't wait for the plane to take off. Well, the plane... Uh, they had, we had to change planes. So when I got off the plane, I couldn't find the marshals. I said, holy Christ, how am I going to get out of here? So uh, I went to the phone. They give you an 800 number to call. <laughs> so, I, so I called the 800 number, and they said, this number is out of service. <laughs> I said, wow. I said, I can't believe it. So I called the feds. I figured I'd call the feds. So I said, I called the feds. And... Uh, now I gotta tell you what ha I gotta tell you what happened just before that. I'm jumping ahead of myself. I switched the planes. I got on another plane. So when I got on the plane, I put my head in a uh, carry-on bag. I stuck it over the head, you know, the top part. 
And I'm sitting there, and I watch, and I see these two guys walking on the plane. And I go, oh, shit, I know these guys, the two outfit guys. And they're boat hitters, you know. So I said, oh, well. So I started to put my head down. They went by me, and the one guy looked at me, and he's like, I could see it in his eyes. He's like, this can't be Frankie. It can't be. And I'm, I know this is what he's thinking. And he sits down two rows in back of me. So I, well, I got to make my move. So I get up, I grab a garment bag out of the top, and I shoot out the airport outside in the terminal. And I hide behind one of them round poles. And I look, and they come running out, and they're looking all around for me. And the other guy says, come on, we got to get out of here. Well, what are we going to do here? We can't do not one minute. So uh, I was listening to them. They don't know. I was only like four, feet, four foot away from them. So that's when I went to the phone. I called the 800 number and all of that stuff. Then I called the feds, and uh, they got right back to me. And they said, take a, take a cab and go out to Midway Airport, which is about 50 miles. And when I went there, uh, they met me over there, and then the, they flew me out. But they were, I think they uh, suspended them to marshals that did that, you know. That was quite right. an experience. All right, we're going to try to get some more questions. Uh, who else? Somebody out here got a question. Come on up. It's easier if you just uh, come on up here and you can, we can hear you. Because it's a long way to the back of the room. There you go, my man. I think I read in uh, your second book, Henry, or... or uh, oh. I read that uh, this has in regards to the uh, Witness Protection Program, that um, you were unhappy with the Witness Protection Program because wherever they located you, you were within close proximity to a, a horse track. Every place I lived, they put me a mile or two. Well, not, you know, some place was 10, 15 miles from a racetrack. And, I, you know, like I, I mentioned, I'm a degenerate gambler. <laughs> Where do I go when you know, I'm bored? I, <laughs> well, would you think they, they set you up to fail? No, absolutely not. No, I was, I was, I, I was absolutely too valuable to them. And, uh, you know, I... Uh, why they uh, they did that? They they put me in a town where there was a federal prison, in the same town, uh, in Kentucky. There was a, there, there was a federal uh, the, the first no the first place they put me was Louisville, and you know in Kentucky, Louisville, there's a federal prison there. You, you know people move their families there. Guys doing a lot of time move their families there. You know and uh, anyway it was a bad situation. I stayed in Louisville for about a minute. And uh, no, I didn't even uh, leave the airport. I called the the eight hundred number. <laughs> <laughs> it worked. <laughs> but I'll tell you that marshal come. He was the only marshal I didn't get along with. He he was so mad because he had to drive me like one hundred and fifty miles. Me and my family with all the luggage. He had to go get another car, you know, uh, with another marshal, and it was, we had a caravan, and that's why we wound up in Rapid Edge. <laughs> But it's a true story. And uh, what was the original question? <laughs> I'm getting old. <laughs> All right. Thank you. <laughs> Another question from somebody. Come on. Come on over here. All right. We got two of you, so just we'll, we'll get each one of you. Come on up, sir. You can come up behind her. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. This one's for Frank. Uh, Frank, last night you told a great story about the lip readers, and I think the audience would enjoy hearing that. Okay. (laughs) See, we knew the feds were in a building, in a bank building, and they were watching us. Uh, We were informed by a a girl that worked in a bank. 
So I let my crew know about it and Tony also. And so we started talking in the parking lot on purpose with our hands over our mouth like this. So they couldn't read our lips because we were told that they had lip readers up there. And uh, well, that's basically it. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, Vito was just bringing up the fact that Casino, which you were a technical advisor, and also that you appeared in three different scenes. Is that correct? Yeah. Why don't you tell them about that? Because I found that very interesting when I first met you, um, that you were the first, I think you're the only one that I've ever known that was able to actually be an actor portraying the things you did. Yeah, I uh, was an advisor for Casino, and I helped put the script together, and and then I had interviews with uh, De Niro, Pesci, Sharon Stone, Scorsese, several meetings with them. And actually, you know, i got to tell you something. They paid me to talk to me. I couldn't believe it. De Niro gave me 5000 to sit in the room and talk to him because he wanted insight. Yeah. Forget about it. I keep it for myself. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Marty wanted to do, there was actual killing scenes in there that I actually done in real life. And uh, he thought he would put me into these scenes to do, you know. So they wrote it up. The guy who actually did these killings in real life is the first one to do these in, uh, in a movie, which uh, I'd done. And uh, I'm not bragging when I tell you this, but every scene that we'd done, it was just one take. Usually they got a lot of takes. So I'd say cut. And one scene where you see the guy in the car, and I'm, I hit him in the face with a pipe. Well, that was actually was styrofoam. But I hit him with my hand accidentally when I went through the window and I knocked him out. <laughs> and when I knocked him out, his foot went on the gas pedal and the car was racing and Marty was on the boom with the camera. And he's going, beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> then the guy's wife ran up and the guy finally come out of it and his wife come up. She says, you should have hit him harder. You should have hit him harder. <laughs> and that's a true story, really. All right. So now, how many people here have seen the movie Casino? Quite a few of you, right? Okay, do you know the scenes he's talking about? Okay, good. Because uh, if you look very carefully through the movie, you'll see him three different times. Okay, we have another question over here. I was just wondering if you guys had the same structure to build on yourselves, if you guys were in charge. How many things would you change about the things that had happened? Like... If you guys were the the main guys, yeah, the bosses running the sh running the stuff. Oh, that's easy. Well, to be honest with you, the way that the way that I look at it is that in Italy, everybody in the family eats. In certain in certain scenarios in New York, it doesn't work that way. You know, like I said it so many times, the respect goes up the ladder, but it don't come down. That's the way it is. The bosses don't care about guys underneath them. They only care about the bottom bottom dollar, where the money is, and who's bringing the money in as fast as they can. That's all it is. You could be the flavor of the week, making money this week. Next week, you're running low, somebody else is next. And I would structure it where they actually took care of their own. And I'd make sure that the guys, make sure that the guys who are working with them took care of their guys. If, you, if you're a made guy and you've got a crew, you make sure everybody in your crew is taken care of. And they never did that. They didn't, you know, because the guy who's the crew leader, he's taking as much money as he can, too, from the guys underneath them. And it's just past the buck, and nobody lived up to that responsibility. That's what you would like to see. 
see guys' families getting taken care of when they went to the can, seeing people look out for one another, but you don't see it. They talk about it, and they want you to believe that that's going to happen, but it never does. Okay, uh, Henry, we, we just heard that you know casino is about 95% correct. Tell us about Goodfellas. Is that is it pretty much the actual story, or did they, they take poetic license with your license? All, no, it was the whole truth, nothing but the truth. It, and, I mean, it actually was. They didn't, they didn't embellish anything in that movie. And, uh, you know, I, like uh, Andrew said, I'm, you know, I'm not proud of my past. It's my past. I got to own it. But, uh, you know, I live differently today. I, you know, I'm a different person. But, I mean, the movie was right on. I mean, I, I coached De Niro. I mean, I wasn't allowed on, a, on the set because they, they, uh, they filmed on location. So I, uh, you so know, you got I had to it. work with Ray Liotta. And oh yeah, I worked with Liotta. No, I didn't work with Liotta on a movie because Scorsese had never directed him, and he, uh, he, you know, so he told me, please don't, you know, do not talk to uh, to Ray before because Ray wanted to talk to me. Right. But I, but but I coached De Niro. I coached. I mean, every day, uh, probably uh, I don't know. One month, my phone bill was uh, close to four thousand dollars. You know, honest to God, I mean, he wouldn't go out of the trailer without talking to me five or six times. I mean, he's such a great actor. Yeah. And, he, you know, and everything in the movie is true. And they even, uh, uh, they had to, uh, it, it would have been rated X for the violence, but they had to uh, tone it down because of uh, the, the rating system. Right. And, uh, I mean, like I said, I'm not, you know, I'm not proud of that movie. I mean... You know, I'm, I'm no, proud I, of I the way. I just wanted to know if they kept it pretty much uh, right on your right head. on the money. Just yeah. uh, if, if you've read the book Wise Guy, it's you know scene for right. scene. Yeah. And I, I don't know about anybody, but I gotta go to the bathroom. So can we take a break? <laughs> can we take a break and, and smoke a cigarette? Yeah, go ahead. Pass the mic back. We'll, we'll excuse Henry for a bathroom break. Is that okay? Go ahead. Okay, go ahead, Henry. Frank, uh, wasn't Casino supposedly a movie that had the, more, the most amount of FUs in any movie ever made? Now, I heard that. I don't know if well, that's that true. Was, that was Pesci doing that. Yeah, Pesci. That's song. what I'm saying. But there the was, movie there itself. Was not, yeah, there was no, yeah. no, no swearing in it. Well, there was swearing in the script. But Pesci, he just, you know, he got on it a little too much. I think he said, said the F word maybe four or 500 times in the movie. Now, as far as reality in the movie, I'd say it was like 95% on the money. The scene with the vice, the guy's head in the vice, uh, his head was jammed in face down. It wasn't, he wasn't laid down. And they, had a, uh, they wouldn't get past the censors because it would be too violent to see the guy's eye popping and hanging out. And as far as the killing scene, when they killed the brothers, they used me in that scene. I, I didn't kill Tony and his brother. Uh, but they needed to prove something that I told them previous to that that it's your best friend that brings you and gets you killed. Your best friend. Uh, because that's the guy you're going to trust. So he's going to march you in there and say the bosses want to see her or whatever. And it makes it easier to whack you, you know. So when they put me in that scene, of course, most everybody asked me that question. You didn't really kill Tony and his brother, did you? No, I didn't. You know, And I explained that to him because I refused to do that part. But they used Frank Vincent, who played my character, to do it. And you said uh, to me once that Tony really didn't use a lot of bad language, uh, Tony Spilatro. No, he... So that the Pesci's basically took that and did it his own way. But, I mean, Tony himself was not a, a guy to use language very much. Actually, Tony was a gentleman. If he was mad, he'd, give you, he'd look at you with his ice eyes 
and you know that you are in trouble. And, you know, I never seen the guy really screaming at anybody. And I know this guy since we're 12 years old. Right. Okay. Anybody else? We got questions. If you got a question, come on up. We'll have you, have you ask it. Hi, Frank. How you doing? Yeah. Long time no see. How you doing? Uh, how you doing? <laughs> yeah, you're talking to me. Okay. Yes, I did that. Okay. In your book, you solved a crime. Well, the, the, the barroom crime, murders. Oh, or uh, Larry Newman killing yeah. people? Yeah. yeah. Where is that sitting right now? Is, is that case closed, or are they still working on it? Well, Larry Newman died in the penitentiary, as you know. So they couldn't convict him on it. They knew that he'd done it, it was, but they, they didn't follow through on it. Don't forget, it was like 30 years, 30-some years ago. It's pretty hard to prove a murder case. If, you know, you've got to have cooperating evidence. So uh, the people that read that book, the girl, she seen that, and then she uh, went right to the police department. And then I talked to the police department several times. I was interviewed on that when, it, when I rolled, when I first rolled. I told McHenry County about it, and uh, the guy didn't believe me. I said, all right, you know, what am I going to do? I'm going to twist his arm. I, you got to, when they give you the fifth, I had, I mean, not the fifth, I had uh, transitional immunity. I had nothing to lose. I had more to lose if I lied. So I told the truth. Uh, Mark, I'll, I'll just add to that. Uh, the son of the bar owner, uh, what we're talking about, there was a 1981 double homicide in McHenry County, Illinois, outside of Chicago. And in Frank's biography, he tells how Larry Newman had gone to McHenry County and committed these two murders. Um, the, after he uh, turned a government witness, the cops interviewed him. He gave them the information. They never did anything with it. And why they didn't do it is uh, a lot of speculation into that. But what happened is now the, uh, the son of the murdered man, uh, his former babysitter read the book, and they got in touch with Frank, in fact, or to me and with Frank. And the son now is writing a, um, writing a book about his father's murder. And it was uh, 2009, so it was you know, a 28-year-old homicide. And I don't... Uh, this, this kid, the son of the, of the slain bar man, uh, he said he'd given up on any possibility of ever having his dad's murder solved. So it was... Uh, uh, a very emotional time for him to finally find out who killed his father. Hey, Denny, let me, let me tell him about it. I talked to this Larry Newman. He worked for me. This guy was a cold-blooded killer. I talked to him for probably three, four hours in my restaurant, and I, and I had him convinced. Well, at least I thought I convinced him not to commit these killings. And the reason why he went over there to kill this guy, uh, he said the guy insulted him by strangling his ex-wife and throwing her out of a tavern that this guy owned. And I told him, she's your ex-wife. He says, uh, he insulted me. He's, and I, I talked to him, like I said, for three, four hours, and he promised me he wasn't going to go back there and do it. But he just, uh, he went back there, and he took a friend of mine back there, and there happened to be a, a waitress in the place with the guy they were counting the receipts. It was early in the morning, and he went in there, and he shot him both in the head. And I, and I screamed and hollered at him when I found out about it, when he came back, and... Uh, Tony, my, my friend, or my boss, said to me, did the big guy do that? And I said, no, he didn't do it. I had a lie, you know, for him. Not that we were going to do anything to him. He said, you know, that guy's very dangerous. I said, yeah, I know. 
And he says, you sure he didn't do it? I said, I didn't do it. I says, he wanted to do it. I said, it was probably a tavern robbery, you know, because it was a saloon, you know. And uh, he killed a girl. And he explained to me what happened. And he said he found 6000 in there and uh, took the money with him and everything. The guy was a bad guy, bad guy. All right, we got another question right over here. Uh, I've had the opportunity to meet these guys uh, before they were on uh, uh, our show, Vegas Unwrapped. And uh, I just finished reading uh, both Frank's book and uh, Andrew's book. And uh, by the way, I'll tell you, they are worth the read. They, they mem- mesmerize you all the time. But the question is for Frank, because Frank, in your book, you talked about uh, you know, your relationship with Tony Spilatro for many, many years. And yet... You never actually joined the outfit, and uh, I was wondering about that. I mean, you had the opportunity. Uh, you still worked with them, but you didn't actually join them, and I was kind of wondering why that never took place. I didn't join them until I went to Vegas. I was always connected to the outfit since I was a kid, maybe 17, 18 years old. I grew up in a neighborhood that were all wise guys, all alpha guys. I never wanted to be controlled by them, although I did kick in ends of big scores, only big scores. All right, they, if it was like a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars, you had to give them an end or three hundred thousand, whatever it was. When I was told to move to Vegas with Tony, that's when I became connected. That's when Joe Lombardo became my boss. Okay, because he was Tony's boss. Thank you. Okay. Great to see you guys again, Frank. You you had said to me, uh, yeah, go ahead. You had said to me that one of the reasons that you didn't want to be controlled was because the outfit guys would have to drive, like, plain cars, uh, cheaper cars. You liked driving nice cars. Uh, was that true? I mean, they actually kept them driving and, and saying really, really low-key? Yeah, they used to drive Chevys and Oldsmobiles and Fords around. And I figured if I'm out there robbing thousands of dollars, I, you know, why, why can't I drive a Cadillac? Right. Well, so they used to get mad at me. I said, what am I stealing for? I can't drive a nice car. You know, you so, so the movie version of, the, of these, yeah. the movie versions kind of stretches that out of with the suits and the cars. I mean, from what I'm hearing, you're saying they actually dressed low-key and lived in no, low-key places. they always dressed nice. Yeah? They lived okay. in low-keyed homes, you know, like yeah. in other words. Yeah, they didn't have big fancy places. Like that house you would see up there. They didn't right. live, not Tony Ocardo lived in a, a mansion, you know. He had a bowling alley in his house. <laughs> All right. What is it? I'm sorry, Vito. be still at... Henry, the scene. Turn around. Are you still that tough now, Henry? Absolutely not. (laughs) But that's so true. I mean, it's, uh, you know, 100%, not 99%, true, 100%. I know we get this question a lot when we do things. Do you still talk to Karen at all? Absolutely. She's a soulmate, and she always will be. Uh, We talk at, at least once a week, you know. And we see each other occasionally. But I'm with a wonderful lady now. She's worse than than an FBI agent and a cop when it comes to my drinking. Unbelievable. She follows me around like a hack, you know, which is a a cop. (laughs) But she's a great lady. But I do talk to Karen. And, you know, I got my family back. For the years I didn't because of the program. You know, and I, you know, and for their protection, too. How about when she held the gun to your head? Absolutely true. Yeah? Honest to God. Wow. All I see was those copper bullets That's it. in it. It was a revolver. We're going uh, to take like two more questions so we can leave enough time for the books and everything else. Come on up, young lady. 
Well, walk to her. I have a question for all three of you guys. Go ahead. Wow. Go right down the line for this one. I want to hear you. You star, Henry. Why did you ask that question? <laughs> I mean, I feel guilty enough. I'm, I'm a Catholic, you know, and uh, an Irish. Pardon? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I go to confession. I ain't got time to go to confession today. Next week. <laughs> I don't, you, you know, that, that is a tough question. My wife knew I had a girlfriend, you know, and... Henry, I've got a 357 at home. <laughs> Pardon? I've got a 357 at home. I went to that with it. God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Andrew. I'm going to give this to Andrew. <laughs> That's a tough question. Andrew, more of the modern era. Go ahead. Well, I'll be honest with you. You know, it, it happens a lot. You know, I got married at a very young age, and uh, I was too young to get married. And what happened was I got involved in a lot of scenarios like that. I didn't have a steady girlfriend or anything like that, but I was out a lot. I was never home. And, uh, you know, I regret it now because, you know, I miss my son. I miss some formidable years with him but being incarcerated and stuff. And uh, it was annoying. But i tell you the truth. When I got separated from my wife, she got mad at me once. Billy, you were with me. Remember? I got out of the car at 2 o'clock in the morning. She was laying on me by the house, right? Remember that? And I was I was separated, and she was upset. So yeah, I mean it might be annoying for some guys, but it's too stressful. If you want to live that kind of life, you gotta understand that having two lives and a girlfriend and a, and a wife, it's too stressful to even. One woman, one woman is bad enough, believe me. How about you, Frank? I'll be honest with you. I didn't have a girlfriend while I was married. I I, uh, I felt as though I would be disrespecting my wife by that. Uh, so I really never had a girlfriend while I was married. Wow, when very I good. That's the dynasty guy true. There was no need for a woman. I was, I was content with her. And I had three wives. So. I was content with each one of them. <laughs> no. I think uh, you had one question. This will be our last question so we can save a lot of time for um, books and everything. This one's for Frank. I just wanted to know, how did you feel about playing the part in the movie and reliving that experience of having to, yeah, getting paid for the same hit twice. Yeah, and he got paid for it one time. Did that bother you doing no, it, it again? No, it didn't bother me. You sort of wiped that out of your mind, you know. When you actually, when I actually did them real killings in in, in real life, you justify that in your mind. If I was to reminisce about that stuff all the time, I guess it would bother me now. It would bother me now, because I'm not neither a judge or a jury. But when you're ordered to whack somebody, you whack them or you get whacked. So, but I, I didn't feel bad doing them scenes or watching them scenes. You know, it's Hollywood. All right, what we're going to do now, uh, I just want right. to let everybody know, there's really good books involved with the people up here, including myself. There's posters, there's pictures. Anything, shake hands, autographs, whatever you're looking for. How many Italians we got in this room? How many Italians? Okay. One quick joke. Listen to this joke now. Bank robbers in the bank. Tells everybody, down on your face. 
If I see anybody peeking, you're dead. I'm telling you, you're dead. So he's walking around. He sees a guy peeking. He goes right up to him. He shoots him dead. Everybody in the bank, they got their face right against the floor now. They're petrified, petrified. All of a sudden, the 85-year-old Italian guy got his face on the floor. He's waving his hand in the air. The bank robber goes, what? What do you want? He goes, my wife over here, she does a peeking. <laughs> 60 years, he figured he'd get rid of her then. Take the time to greet everybody. Thank you very much for coming here. God bless.